Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the John Campia Podcast. I'm, of course, your host, John Campia. On this 4th of July, I hope all of you guys have a fun, festive, but most of all, safe, don't need anybody blowing their freaking faces off, uh, 4th of July celebrations. You know, me and a bunch of my kin, we just celebrated Canada Day on July 1st, now July the 4th, and I hope you guys are having a great time. Now, as you guys, hopefully most of you guys know, here on my YouTube channel, every day I do a little show called The Movie Vlog, where I run down what's going on in that day's events in the world of movie news. But first thing I like to do is to take the questions and the topics and the theories and the opinions that you guys send to me. And you can send in your questions to me for the John Campia podcast simply by emailing me at thejohncampiapodcast at gmail.com. But also make sure you're following me on Facebook and on Twitter because sometimes I'll hop on there and call for questions from you guys on my social media. So make sure you guys are following me there. All right. With all that out of the way, let's get to the questions today. And the first question today comes to us from Jonathan Stubbs, who writes, Please discuss the recent rise in studios blaming outside factors, marketing critics, in films failing at the box office. Yeah, we are seeing now more than ever. And it really came to a head with a couple of films we've heard directors, but even now with Baywatch recently. Like The Rock himself came out and kind of criticized and blamed like Rotten Tomatoes and critics for their films failing. When really their films failed because they suck. Like Baywatch was terrible. I mean, you all know I'm a huge fan of The Rock. I love The Rock. I'll watch anything with The Rock. I love Zac Efron. I really like the director of the film. I was very excited for Baywatch. And that movie was a steaming pile of shit. It was just an awful awful movie. And I love films like 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street and, you know, a lot of the R-rated comedies and stuff like that. But you got to be funny and Baywatch just wasn't funny. It was just cringeworthy the whole way through. Nothing entertaining about it. It was terrible. But anyway, now these days you get, you know, some studios, some directors, some some actors sometimes who want to point a finger and blame somebody else other than themselves for the failure or lack of more success for their films. And the prime target is Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of people will point at Rotten Tomatoes and say, Rotten Tomatoes is the problem. Now, it still astounds me that so many people still don't understand what Rotten Tomatoes is and Rotten Tomatoes does. Like, you'd be surprised. I still get emails every day saying, why did Rotten Tomatoes give this movie this score? And it's like, you don't get it. Rotten Tomatoes. And you guys have heard me say this many times. Rotten Tomatoes does not give scores. Rotten Tomatoes isn't doesn't have a film critic on their staff at all. Rotten Tomatoes, all they do is they go out and get all the other film critics' scores, bring them in, and then simply tell you what percentage of the critics thought the movie was good and what percentage of the critics didn't think it was good. It's a very simple, pure system. I love that. Just how many critics thought it was good and would recommend it, how many critics thought it wasn't good and would not recommend it. So when you get a Rotten Tomatoes score of, say, 51%, that's not Rotten Tomatoes giving that movie a 51 out of 100. No, no. It's simply telling you that out of all the film critics out there, 51% of it said it's good and worth seeing. 49% said it's not good or worth seeing. And that's just the way it works. And, you know, that's how it is. So when I hear studios... Why, and I've got a huge amount of respect for the studios, man. Like a lot of you know, I, I actually respect the studios a lot more than most film fans do because everybody wants to stick it to the man. Anyway, I've got a lot of respect for the studios. But when studios or directors or actors start 
complaining about, it's Rotten Tomatoes' fault. I'm sorry. You're just a bunch of sucky, whiny babies. Just a bunch of sucky, whiny babies. Oh, I'm sorry. Did did you make a bad movie and somebody dared let the public know that you made a bad movie before they went out and spent their hard-earned money to buy a ticket to your movie? Now, when I hear studios or directors, whatever, complain about Rotten Tomatoes of the critics and giving them scores and all this kind of crap, all I hear is some rich dude going, you won't let me trick the audience into buying tickets to my bad movie. How come you're not letting me trick the audience anymore? That's what they're saying. When they say, we blame Rotten Tomatoes, what they're really saying is, damn it, there's a mechanism out there to let people know whether our movies are good or not and whether they should spend their money on us or not. Basically, they're crying. They don't, they don't get to get away with jipping out the audience anymore. That's all it is. That's all it is. So I'm sorry, if Baywatch fails, it's because the movie wasn't good. It's just that simple. Your movie sucked. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be people who do like it. All film is subjective. I think the prequels are crappy, but there are people out there who like the prequels, and I'm glad that there are. I think Baywatch is a big pile of shit. But guess what? There are people out there who liked Baywatch, and I'm glad that there are. But mechanisms like whether it's, you know, Metacritic or whether it's Rotten Tomatoes, whatever, they're simply there to tell you what this group of people who watch films for a living, what they actually thought about the movie, whether it was good or not. And this nonsense about, well, critics don't like movies that fans like. Really? Because the critics seem to love The Dark Knight, and the critics love The Lord of the Rings, and the critics love, uh, you know, Avengers, and the critics love Deadpool, and the critics love 21 Jump Street, and the critics love blah, blah, on and on and on and on. All those really good movies out there, critics loved them. So don't give me this bullshit, whiny baby, critics don't like the movies that fans like. Yeah, they do. There's this little thing called facts that kind of go against you now. Every once in a while, because all film is subjective, there are movies out there like, say, that the majority of critics don't like, and, and a lot of people do. That's the way it should work. That's the beauty of the subjectivity of film. Um, now, as far as blaming marketing goes, well, they've got a point. When a studio blames their own marketing campaign, they do have a point. Marketing has a huge part to play in whether or not people will go out to see the movie. Because remember, what is marketing? Marketing is the process of selling the movie to the audience. And quite often, like, goodness gracious, a great example of this is that Tom Cruise movie we talk about it a lot, Live, Die, Repeat, uh, Never Ending Tomorrow Again. You know, that stupid title and bad marketing of a movie. Um, that was a great example of a really good film. That was an example of a really good film that got submarined because they had terrible marketing campaign. And thankfully, it was good enough And then here come those critics and enough critics told people that the movie was great, that even though it had a really bad marketing campaign and it started off really slow at the box office, it picked up momentum because of positive word of mouth from critics and fans. So there's an example of critics actually saving a movie from a bad marketing campaign, but they are right. When they admit that they had a bad marketing campaign, they are onto something there. But this whole thing about blaming critics or or blaming Rotten Tomatoes or whatever for the failure of the movie, again, that's just them crying that they're not allowed to swindle the audience anymore. They're not allowed to, yeah, we made a piece of crap movie, but we'll make a really nice trailer and trick people into coming to see it. Oh no, there's Rotten Tomatoes that's there to be a safety guard between the studio marketing machine and the audience to give the audience fair warning. Hey, there's a pretty good chance you're going to love this movie or there's a pretty good chance you're not going to like the movie. Only you can decide if you did like it or not, but I really like that those tools are there to give the audience some heads up. Anyway, 
All right, let's move on to the next question. And the next question today comes to us from Tony Dingwall, who writes, With Iron Man being a massive part of the new Spider-Man film, do you think the MCU are relying too heavily on the Iron Man character? Well, look, I'll be the first to admit, one of my biggest fears going into watching Spider-Man Homecoming was... Is there going to be a big over-reliance? Is there going to be, is this basically going to be Iron Man 4? I talked about that before when I, when the trailers came out. I'm like, this just is feeling more like Iron Man 4 with special guest Spider-Man because they relied a lot of the marketing on the Iron Man and Tony Stark character. Now, I also kind of understand why they did. Tony Stark and Iron Man is one of the most popular characters in the MCU. And if you really want to sell this movie, let people know that he's in it. Now, you ask him the question, with him being a massive part of the new Spider-Man, he's not a massive part on it. He's certainly got a, he's got a presence in the movie, no doubt. He has a presence in the movie. But his total combined screen time is actually not that much. He's not in the film much at all. He has some very important scenes, and when he shows up, he makes a big statement, and he has a very strong presence when he's there, but he's not actually in the movie all that much. And so, yeah, even though it was my big fear they would have an over-reliance on him, this movie, even though the marketing campaign does, the movie itself doesn't have an over-reliance on Iron Man. But even if they did, I don't really think that's necessarily too bad of a thing. Think of it in terms of sports analogies. You know I like my sports analogies. Like the Chicago Bulls back in the day. Are they in danger of relying on Michael Jordan too much? Well, Michael Jordan's your best player. Michael Jordan's the best player on the planet. Of course you rely on him. He's your strongest tool in the box. Man, do you think the the Cleveland Cavaliers might rely a little too much on LeBron James? He's the best basketball player on the planet. Of course you rely on him. Do you think the Edmonton Oilers rely too much on Wayne Gretzky? He's the best hockey player to ever live. Of course you rely on him. You play to your strengths. And I think that the MCU has diversified itself enough. You know, Iron Man never popped up in Ant-Man. He never popped up in... Uh, 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 Doctor Strange. Why did I brain freeze on Doctor Strange for a minute? I mean, there's a lot of MCU films he doesn't even show up in. Not the slightest presence in whatsoever. So if they use him now and again, that's because he's one of the strongest tools in their box and there's nothing wrong with that. But as far as your fear about him being massively used in Spider-Man Homecoming, don't worry about it. They don't use him all that much. Okay, the next question today comes to us from Ryan Peabody who writes... What is your favorite John Goodman performance? Well, John Goodman is one of these actors who I just get a smile on my face whenever he pops up, either in a television show or in a movie. I mean, you just can't help it. You put a big smile on your face when he's there. I still remember when he popped up in Oh Brother or Out Thou, and I was like, <gasps> I just got all excited that he was in it. Um, but asking me what are my favorite performances of his? All right, I'm going to pull one from movies. I'm going to pull one from television. These are my two favorite performances of his. One is obviously Walter from The Big Lebowski. I know that's a that's almost a cop-out answer, but it's the, if I'm going to tell you the truth, the truth is my favorite performance of his is Walter and The Big Lebowski. He was great in matinee. Uh, he's great in a lot of stuff that he's in. So I would go with that one. My other favorite performance of his isn't all that big, but he blew me away when he did it. And that was in the TV show, The West Wing. A lot of people forget he actually, his character became president of the United States for a short period of time. It was when President Bartlett's daughter was kidnapped and he judged himself incapable of being able to execute the office of the presidency because he was compromised because his daughter was kidnapped. 
They didn't have a vice president at the time. So the Republican Speaker of the House, played by John Goodman, has to assume the presidency. And he does amazing work in that show. Like I said, it's not a huge thing. It's not the thing he's going to be remembered for. But he was fantastic in that, in his role there. And so those are the ones. So Big Lebowski and his role in The West Wing. That's does it for me. So let me know. What do you guys, what are your favorite John Goodman performances? Jump into the comments section. And even if it's King Ralph, go ahead and leave your thoughts there. All right. The next question comes to us from Eloy Vasquez, who writes... If they reboot the Transformers movies, and heaven, hopefully they do, would Peter Cullen return as Optimus Prime? Okay, look. Like many of you, I grew up on the Transformers. And that means I grew up being parented with a third parent, and that's Peter Cullen as the voice of Optimus Prime. He was my authority figure in my life. And I was thrilled when they announced that he was going to do the voice of Optimus Prime in the live-action movies. Now, I remember saying at the time, you don't, it doesn't have to be Peter Cullen, but damn, I was happy that it was. I think if you reboot, you have to get another actor at this point. Like, but that's just consistent with what I believe with reboots. If you are rebooting, you get rid of the old cast and you bring in the new cast. The only exception I would make for that is, uh, J. Jonah Jameson being played by J.K. Simmons. I would totally be up for J.K. Simmons coming back to play J. Jonah Jameson. That would be amazing. But other than that, that one exception, I believe the rule should be if you're rebooting, that means clean slate, wipe everything else away, and you bring in new talent. And, you know, if they did reboot Transformers, I would hope they would bring in a new voice talent. Not because I don't love Peter Cullen, but just because I believe you should start fresh. And also, I believe the studio, if you're rebooting, that means you're going to try to get the audience to forget about all the crap. If Paramount decides to reboot, that's Paramount acknowledging, okay, we've let this franchise get out of hand and get really, really bad. And if they're going to do that, if they're going to admit that, then you have to wipe away all, you know, anything that reminds you of that horrible, dark period of time, which is Transformers 2, 3, 4, and 5. You got to get rid of it. So I do believe that Paramount would recast the voice of Optimus Prime, and I do believe they should recast the voice of Optimus Prime. Anyway, but jump in the comment. Maybe you have a different thought or a different philosophy altogether. Jump in the comment section. Let me know. All right. The next question. I'm going to struggle with this name. The next question comes to us from Ulysses Mayorga, who writes, Will we see the Marvel Studios intro in Spider-Man Homecoming, or just the Sony Pictures intro? Ah, good question. And I can let you know, and this isn't, if you consider this a spoiler, you're a moron. Because it's just the opening credits, okay? Um, yes, you are going to see the Marvel Cinematic intro that you see in front of all their movies. Why? Because while this is a Sony Pictures film... One of the production companies of record is Marvel Studios. They are one of the production companies. Now, so is Columbia, but Marvel Studios is one of the production companies of record. So you are going to see, and you know, I've seen Spider-Man Homecoming, so I can tell you that it's there, but that's why it's there because they are a production company on the film and they deserve to have it there and it is there. And it's really cool too. Wait till you see it. They do a little something different, but you'll see. All right. And the last question today comes to us from Brendan Day, who writes, Who is your favorite character on Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones is coming back. It's going to be back on TV here pretty soon. I'm actually going to be doing recaps 
of Game of Thrones, my own personal review and recaps of each episode of Game of Thrones. Anne will probably join me for that. I might get one or two other friends who join me for that as well because, you know, I really enjoy watching that show and I love talking about the show after it airs. Look, there are so many. What makes Game of Thrones such a great show is much like, you know, Sons of Anarchy, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. It's just filled with rich characters. A lot of shows, you get one or two really rich characters. That's great. And they make for good shows. But games like, or shows like Sons of Anarchy and Game of Thrones, they are populated with deep three-dimensional characters that we love. Like whether it's a little finger or whether it's, or was, Hodor, or whether it's, um, oh gosh, whether it's Jon Snow or whether it's Ramsey or whether it's, you know, for me though, I think I'm going to give the answer that probably about 70% of the people out there would give. And that's, uh, Tyrion Lannister. Um, he's just the best. He's awesome. Whenever he's on screen, you know, one of my biggest complaints about, I think it might've been season five, either four or five was there really was probably a combined total of 18 minutes of uh, Tyrion in the show that season. That was my big complaints. When he's not there, I like the show less. Uh, even though the show is filled and riddled with lots of great characters. But I really like that character. I think it's because his power comes from his mind. His strength comes from his language. You know, he is thoroughly entertaining just by talking. And he's the best. Um, and that one scene he had with Khaleesi at the end of last season when he's basically pledging his allegiance to her and she makes him the hand of the queen. That scene was so unbelievably moving and so strong and so powerful. I absolutely loved it. Anyway, so that is my favorite uh, Game of Thrones character. Cannot wait for the show to come back. And that will do it for me, guys, for this installment of the John Campia podcast, this 4th of July edition. Make sure you jump to the comments section. Tell me your favorite Game of Thrones character and why. You can, you can even name one or two if you want. You can cheat and even name three or four if you want. I'll let you do that. Hey, guys, don't forget, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Make sure you're following me on social media, on Facebook and on Twitter, just at John Campia. And come on over to the John Campia YouTube channel every day to keep up to date with everything going on on the world of entertainment and all my thoughts and ramblings on the subjects. Anyway, guys, that'll do it for me. Thanks a lot for joining me. And until next time, bye-bye.